Years ago, before we uh, came down to seminary, we attended a, a wonderful church, uh, a wonderful Bible teaching church. And the pastor was teaching through the book of Romans. And he reached chapter 9 and skipped it. And I want to tell you, I never understood him and his actions so well as I do this morning. If there was any way I could skip a text, this would be the one. But you can't, you really can't leave the dark corners of Scripture alone. It seems to me you have to take the tough ones along with the other ones. And this is one of the toughest texts I've dealt with. I've agonized over it, and I realized throughout the week I was trying to find some escape for uh, Jephthah, some way that he wasn't such a, a, just a downright jerk in this, in this text. And, and then I was reminded of my own hermeneutic. Uh, when I was teaching about the role of women in the church, I gave Deffy's hermeneutics, do you remember? And one of them was, the text means whatever it plainly seems to mean. And, and all of a sudden, I said to myself, all right, I've got to give up. <laughs> I've got to deal with this text the way it appears plainly to speak. It's, uh, it's a challenge, but let's, let's go ahead and, and, and deal with it. And I think this is a time when your hermeneutics have to guide you. When, you. when you establish a course and a way of dealing with text, you don't set that way of dealing with those texts aside when you'd rather the text said something other than it did. So here we go. And I, I've decided to do chapters 10 through 12 because it seems to me you have to take the story of Jephthah as a whole or, or you're just going to miss it in parts. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tiptoe through the tulips, so to speak, and, and see if we can get through all of the text. Notice, first of all, the minor judges that you find, not only in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, but also in chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. You've got these uh, folks, Tola and Jer, in, in chapter 10, and then you've got Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon in chapter 12. And you have to note that there's a lot of information missing. Wouldn't you like to hear the stories that could have been told about each one of these judges who delivered Israel? Of all of the major judges that we have read about, what makes them major is not that they're more important, it's simply that there is more information provided about them. And we would like, I know in our curiosity, we would love to know the stories about these guys. Well, maybe in Judges we wouldn't... <laughs> Maybe we'd rather have the Reader's Digest version to just slip on by, but we're not going to be told what the story is about these guys. So what is there that we are told? Well, there's family matters, and by that I'm, I'm saying there not only is the generally the origin, the, the tribe from which they come uh, indicated to us, but also there may be something about their children or whatever that's, that's provided that may be uh, beneficial and insightful for us. There's a statement about how long they lived and how long they ruled and therefore how long Israel would have peace under them. In every case in these minor judges in chapter 10 and chapter 12, we're told where they're buried. 
I don't know why. I don't know why. Is it because as you traveled around Israel, you would think as you came to a particular town, this is where so-and-so was buried and you were to remember the history? Maybe that was it. Maybe their graves were a monument to what God had done through those people. But here's what we do know. We know that there were a whole lot of judges. And, and as we read through this, we focus, and the author focuses on a certain number of major judges. It would be true. But there also are all these other minor judges that are sort of salt and peppered in the midst of the text. And you'd say, well, why? Why do we need to know this? And I think what you have to see is there were, there were all kinds of instances in Israel of apostasy and departure and of judgment that came from without and sometimes from within. There were, there were many instances. Israel didn't just fail a few times. They failed over and over and over again. And the number of judges is in part a measure of the grace and the mercy of God that he kept putting up with them for all these, these instances. Remember in, in Numbers when, when they come to Kadesh Barnea and God says, these ten times... Israel has done this, not just this once or this is the second time. Ten times Israel has done this. And you say to yourself, man, is God patient with these people. He is merciful and he is just. The other thing I think that we see, and it's more of a subtlety, is that Israel was really a collection of city-states. Now, Israel went in and possessed the land as a united nation, and they were supposed to be that. They were supposed to deal with their relationship with God. They were supposed to deal with their enemies as one nation. But you, it, just as you see the statement, every man did what is right in his own eyes, so you start finding these little city-states where here's this little city uh, like Shechem or some of these other places, and you see the, there's a sort of a little fiefdom, uh, a little empire there, and I would suggest to you that is exactly the pattern of the Canaanite states. In other words, politically, Israel began to look just like the Canaanites in their political layout. These little kings and, and these little fiefdoms that they had. And, and uh, what it says to me is, Israel doesn't have a king. One of the things that Israel's king is going to have to do is to unite these people who are so diverse and so separated. And that, my friends, is a big thing to do. Do you remember, for example, when we look in Genesis and we look at Joseph's brothers and you see these guys at one another's throats and they're, they're selling Joseph into slavery and, and, uh, and Judah's going off and living amongst the Canaanites and marrying them and you're saying, these guys are never going to get together. If it weren't for the famine and it weren't for Joseph, they wouldn't have. It took... God's hand to bring them together. So it will be under David. Now the nation that, that will be united again, they will be acting as one, but it doesn't take long. After Solomon and the problems with Solomon, the divided kingdom, here they are, scattered, diverse, fighting with one another, killing one another. It's going to take one great king to unite them, is it not? One great king. But think about it. The level of difficulty has been enhanced. It is now not just 12 tribes that happen to all be Semites. 
Now it is Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, so that God now has this tremendous challenge, which obviously he does very well, of bringing together this diverse group of people into one. But it is through the great king that he does that. All right, let's leave that part behind. And let's move now to Israel's sin, repentance, and God's mercy. The thing that I see in the account uh, of, of Israel's sin in, in chapter 10 is that it's just one more instance of what's happened before with one variation. We are given a great deal more detail. You remember in some of those instances it just basically said in Israel sinned and God brought oppression from those from without, from a particular group of people. Man, in this one, you have got the whole thing laid out in, in unfortunately very elaborate detail. Verse 6, uh, they serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon. Man, they served all of them. Now, it seems to me that this is a statement that is describing Israel as a nation. And it's saying, here is the whole nation of Israel, and here they are. They're just, they're worshiping every god under the sun. It's just unbelievable. And God finally says to them, I assume through a prophet, okay, that's it. You want to serve your gods? Then let your gods deliver you. He said to them before, I am the only God who has brought you deliverance. Now he says, I'm going to let trouble come your way. Let those gods bail you out. Well, obviously they didn't. And you notice it was a period of 18 years that Israel suffered at the hand of their enemies from verse 8. And notice in verse 7, it comes primarily from the hand of the Philistines and from the sons of Ammon. Under Jephthah, we deal with the sons of Ammon. That's coming from the east, across the Jordan. The Philistines are going to come from the west. And who will deal with them? Who is the judge? Samson, right? Who's coming up. So God's going to send a deliverer to deal with both of those uh, opposing forces. But the Lord's basically said to Israel, you're on your own. And notice the Israelites now cry out to God. And they forsake their, their heathen gods, and they begin to worship God again. And, and it says then that God sends uh, a deliverer. It seems to me that it's not Israel's repentance that is so compelling for him. It seems to me it is God's mercy. What he says is, God cannot stand to observe their suffering any longer. Now I say that because Israel has repented before. And they've repented over and over again. And so them merely saying we're sorry doesn't really count for a whole lot. So it seems to me that God looks upon those people, verse 16, he can bear the misery of Israel no longer. So here you have the Ammonites. They're, they're, uh, they're beginning to, to converge upon Israel. And notice verse 18. And the people, the leaders of Gilead... That would be on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, the people of uh, leaders of Gilead say to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? Does that ring any bells in your mind in the book of Judges? In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, you remember the question was, who will, the, the question is asked of God, who will go up for us? 
Here they're asking one another. They, they, they've repented and they're asking God to bail them out. But when the big question comes, who's going to lead? Who do they ask? Themselves rather than God. That strikes me as being uh, somewhat of, of a clue about where they all stand. Okay, now let's look at, the, uh, at Jephthah and the Ammonites, which is the bulk of what we were uh, looking at in the text this morning in chapter 11. Jephthah's promotion in verses uh, 1 through 11. Jephthah was a Gileadite, that is, he was from Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh has two portions of inheritance, one that will be west of the Jordan and one that would be east of the Jordan. And I, I, we're talking about the eastern side because that's where the Ammonites would be coming from. He's a valiant warrior. That's, this is the second time in the book of Judges. Only two men are called mighty men of valor. And, and uh, Jephthah is one of those men. But he is the son of a harlot. Now, there's an interesting kind of correspondence that's coming along because we think not far back of Abimelech whose mother was a concubine. And in that instance, uh, he was looked upon as the inferior, but it's he who takes the initiative to kill off his brothers who are the competition for the throne, right? In this case, here is the son of a prostitute. It's his brothers who throw him out. Fortunately, they don't kill him, but they throw him out. And then when things begin to get difficult, they call him up. Got him on the phone. We really need your help. Notice, by the way, in the meantime, when he's fled to Tobe, that worthless fellows gathered around him. One of uh, the word that is used here in verse uh, three is one of the words to describe the men who were hired to follow Abimelech. So I take it this is not a complimentary term. These were not the cream of the moral crop, but I guess they were good fighters. And so he's got himself a band of, of uh, uh, what I would say are marauders because it says they went out with him. And I take it that they are making raids and it may well be raids on the Ammonites or on the enemies that they would face. But he has proved himself to be a great warrior. So the uh, the uh, sons of Ammon are converging to fight on Israel. The Israelites are asking the question, who's going to lead this attack? Who's going to be our man? And everybody knows the best fighter that they know of is Jephthah, the one that they threw out. So they come with hat in hand, uh, telling him that they would like him now to be their chief. And he basically says, uh, if my memory serves me correctly... Now, this isn't what you were telling me the last time we talked. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Is there not an uncanny parallel between their treatment of their brother, as it were, and Israel's treatment of God? Israel has rejected the God of Israel. And when they get in trouble, what do they do? They come running to God for help. And here's Jephthah's brothers. They've rejected him. Now they're in trouble. What do they do? They come running for help. By the way, in the end time, what will happen? Those who have rejected Jesus as God's deliverer will only find deliverance through him. They will once again have to come to the one whom they've rejected. So they ask him to become their chief. He says, does that mean you're really going to let me rule over you? And they say, yes, yes. And uh, 
So he comes and is embraced. It is interesting in verse 11. Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, I might as well confess to you right now. I like Jephthah. You know, there are a lot of dudes in the scripture I don't like. I like this guy. And and it seems to me that you you have to look with with the one exception of the vow pertaining to his daughter, as it pertains to his daughter. If you set that aside, I think you'd like him too. Would you not? And, And here's a guy who takes all these words before the Lord. It seems to me that what he is doing is somehow making a commitment to the Lord in all of this. And everything I see in him is insightful in terms of Israel's relationship with God. I like what I see other than that vow. So now we come to to, uh, verses uh, 12 and following and the confrontation uh, with the Ammonites who have now converged and they're, they're ready to do battle. Boy, I love this kind of diplomacy. I have to tell you, I don't like Gideon's diplomacy. And I don't like a lot of diplomacy I see going around in this world today now. But I like this guy. He's a guy who speaks out and he speaks the truth and he speaks right. And he's ready to go to war if it doesn't work. So that that makes diplomacy somehow stand out a little stronger in my mind. Well, enough politics for now. But let's let's take a look. Here he sends the messengers to the king of uh, Ammon and says, what's the problem? What's going on? What are you guys assembling? What, what is this about? What, what, are you, uh, what are you angry about? What are you trying to deal? Why are you fighting against me? King of uh, Ammon sends back his messengers and he says, because Israel took away my land, which when they came up from Egypt... From the Arnon as far as the Jabbok. These are rivers that would run on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan, running into the Jordan from the eastern side. And he says, you've taken this land which is mine. Give it back and I won't fight you. Surrender the land. All's cool. And that's the point at which now Jephthah has uh, his history lesson in verses 14 through 27. And, And this is just to me is just a marvelous um, response. Look what he says, in, in essence. A, he says, I think you need to remember your history a little better than you do. He said, first, oh, I, I need to say this to start with. Just as at the end of this chapter, there is a difference, a life-giving difference, between Shibboleth and Sibboleth, that S-H sound, People are going to die on the basis of whether they say it right. So let's get this right. There is a difference between Ammonites and Amorites. Okay? That's the big thing that's going on here. Now, the Ammonites were, remember, of the sons of Lot. And so when Israel is going to possess the land, God says, leave them alone. Moabites, God says, leave them alone. Amorites, you remember in Genesis chapter 15 when he has the, uh, when Abraham has this vision while God's entering into a covenant with him and he says, your descendants are going to go down to, a, to an undesignated land we know to be Egypt now for 400 years and then they're going to come back and possess the land because the iniquity of the 
Amorites is not yet full. Amorites is not a good name. The Ammonites are those people who are relatives of the Israelites. And so when the Israelites were working their way up into the land, God said, leave them alone and don't touch their land. So here is an Ammonite now who is arguing about land that is Amorite land that God has taken from the Amorites. And so his first lesson is this. You need to make a distinction between Ammonites and Amorites. And he says the land that God took away was Amorite land, not Ammonite land. So you're arguing about land that wasn't yours anyway. It was theirs. Problem number one, which could have been solved from history. Incidentally, remember, not only is there clear history given to us as Israel is making the possession of the land in Numbers, there is also a review of that in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and chapter 3. The point being, God thinks history is important and getting your historical facts right is important. And it's surely important here. So then he says, uh, we also ought to talk about theology a little bit. The land which we possess is the land which our God gave to us. And then he says, why don't you guys settle for what your God gives you? You got your God. You take the land he gives you. Which is like saying, you know, if our God's bigger than, than your God and our God gave us the land, it's ours. If your God's bigger and stronger than our God, take it back. But our God gave us this land, and we're going to live on the land that God gave us. You live on the land God, your God, quote-unquote, Jimish, gave to you. Then he has this thing about Balak, and he says, uh, You remember the Moabites? When the Israelites were coming in and they were a threat, Balak did not try to do back then what you are trying to do now. Now, he tried some end-run events. He tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. He was worried about the threat. But what he didn't do is make the claim you're making and try to protect his land from the Israelites in the way that you are. If he didn't do it, maybe you want to look from history and act the same way he did and back off. And the third one is chronological, or the fourth one, and that is, okay, let's take a look at this. 300 years have passed. 300 years. You're talking about ancient history. This happened 300 years ago. You've had 300 years to make it right. So why now? You guys, you know, there's an expiration date on this thing. Uh, there's a statute of limitations that it's long past. So he says to him, in effect, you don't have a leg to stand on. Give it up. And you'll notice that, Je uh, that uh, the, the uh, king of the sons of Ammon uh, disregarded his message. Verse 28, it was great diplomacy, but sometimes the truth isn't enough. And so that leads to the event with the uh, swords th that will come about. So. You have the, the battle that's described in verses 29 through 33. Notice, by the way, how little is said about that battle. Wouldn't we love to know more about the particular victory that's won here? We're not told. We're basically told all of these things leading up to it. And now we're just told 
that when uh, the spirit of the Lord comes upon uh, Jephthah, he uh, leads the people into battle. And then just incidentally, he makes this vow, uh, which we see in verse 30 and verse 31. Now, I love my New American Standard 1971 edition. And I wish, I wish that I could rest with its translation of verse 31. If I did, my problems are over. And yours are too. It says, this is the way they translate it. Then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, over the margin, it says, or, and. <laughs> the problem is, every other translation says, and. And, the later version of the New American Standard says, and. So, it doesn't look like we've got much of an or to stand on. If we did, it would be easy. You know, I'll sacrifice it if it's an animal. I'll, I'll do something else if it's not. But that isn't the way. It looks like the text reads, unfortunately for me. So we have this whole matter that we have to come to terms with, and that is, what about Jephthah's uh, daughter? Because that's going to be the substance now of what we pick up in verses 34 through 40. And this is the time I said that I have to apply my hermeneutical principles. It has to, it has to mean what it says. And, and, and all of the efforts, and I have been... Uh, eager, eager to be persuaded that it didn't happen. But all of my efforts basically take me down to say, what does the text seem to clearly say? And I sympathize with those who say otherwise because my emotions are with them. But I'm going to say the text really says what it says, and that is he really did offer her as a sacrifice. Now, that's a horrid thing, but, but I, I simply remind you of this. Is it the only horrid thing we've ever seen in Judges? I mean, if you're going to see a horrid thing, Judges is a place, is it not? I mean, it's just rated R for violence. You might as well admit it. So if you're going to find something this bad, this is probably the place to find it. And, and so that's the way that I'm approaching that, is that it, it means what it seems to say. Here's where I get off the train from some others. Some have looked at this text and said, Jephthah is really seeking to manipulate God. This is a very manipulative thing. Now, by the way, they had to be in some recent psychology class because they wouldn't have known to say that until the last 30 years. But it's manipulative, and therefore it, it certainly has to be wrong. And that he fully intended, when he said it, to make a human sacrifice. Now, somebody said, generally the first person to come out of, out of the tent would have been his wife. <laughs> Ooh, I don't want to go down that trail. Uh, by the way, it's a masculine uh, that's used, and, and so we don't, know, we don't know where that's coming from. You have to understand that in that part of the world, the house and the barn were nigh unto the same thing. And so, believe me, when you went to see somebody, and, and I don't know how many times in, in various places in Asia, I've gone to the house and there's a chicken standing on the coffee table, you know, and goats coming in and out and whatever. And so, in some ways, your house is your barn. 
And, and, and so it may well be that he expected something animal to come out of there. But you got to say, it was, it was a bad, it was a bad vow. And, and I'm sure he would be the first to say that. I do not believe it was in his intent to manipulate God. I do not believe it was in his intent to offer a sacrifice. And I certainly don't believe he had any idea it would ever involve his only child, his beloved daughter. His response makes that clear, does it not? So whatever he did, he said something which made a commitment for him the implications of which he never saw. And, and by the way, when he's coming back home, he could have said to himself, let me see, exactly how did I word my vow to God? And I would have sent messengers ahead saying, you make sure the goat comes out first, because that's the one I'm going to sacrifice. It's not until his daughter comes out that he is horrified to see it, and he realizes where his vow has taken him. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to say, it, it appears to me that he followed through. Now, I want you to note, and I think some don't look at this enough, take note of the fact that his daughter says to him, Daddy, you need to keep your promise to God. That, that's powerful to me. And you know what it says to me? We got another woman hero here. If Jeff is a jerk, you have to say, this woman, isn't she something? And in a sense, she's an Isaac, a female Isaac, because she realizes where this is going. Isaac doesn't know until he gets up there on top of the top of Mount Moriah. The ropes are getting wrapped around him, and he's saying, well, let me think about this. I see the firewood, and, you know, and it all of a sudden dawns on him. I'm the goat, so to speak. And, and in this case, she basically says, you need to follow through. God gave the victory to Israel you made a covenant. You keep your covenant to God. That makes her a hero in my book, even if her daddy's a jerk for the moment. Well, what lessons should we learn? I, I, I'm going to get to this a little bit later. But, you know, when you, when you see that there are such crummy people, I, I guess here's my, here's, my, all right, here's my one conclusion. Judges are jerks. I could have said judges are jackasses, but that's probably a little too strong, so I won't say that. But judges are jerks. I mean, look at all of them. Are they not? And I know John says they're stupid, but, but they're stupid too. They're stupid jerks. Because these guys are, are really, these are rough-hewn people. Now, one of my friends, who I won't name, happens to be sitting here, was telling me this past week that they were giggling all the way through my last message in, in Judges because that's the world in which they live. See, you and I read this story, and we read about this kind of violence, and it shocks and horrifies us. There are parts of the world, friends, where this stuff happens routinely. When I was uh, doing seminars in prison, we had a situation where there was a church that was inside the, the uh, in, in, a, a body of believers inside the prison, and somebody had done something inappropriate during a seminar, and, and the, the guys were getting together. These, these were believers, I, I'm convinced, and they got in their Bible and says, look, this guy has sinned. Now, what is our responsibility before God in terms of dealing with that? And they turn to Acts and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where, where uh, God struck them dead, and they said, okay, which one of us is going to do it? The guy says, okay, I'll do it. They were going to kill, they were going to kill this guy, because they thought that's what Scripture said. 
I'm telling you, there are parts in the world where people are not so sophisticated as we are and don't have all the end runs. And they take they take things very seriously and very literally and sometimes very violently. So this is not so foreign as you may think. It's foreign to us. It's not necessarily foreign in other parts of the world, even today or in other places such as prisons today. All right, let's move on uh, from that for a moment, and let's talk about Jephthah and Ephraim. Now, if I understand this correctly, we're at, believe it or not, we're in chapter 12, at 12 o'clock. It says, then the men of Ephraim were summoned in in verse 1. It seems to me that this is in chronological order, and that says to me, isn't it interesting that in spite of this terrible thing that's happened in chapter 11, that now God is going to use a Jephthah again in a way that seems to be right. And, and so I have to say that when I look at this whole story of Jephthah, I need to be careful that I don't let that one incident erase every other thing that is said about Jephthah that is good. I'm not saying that we minimize the evil. I'm saying we need to recognize the good. And so it continues on when he deals with Ephraim. Ephraim comes along, what? Now you talk about jerks. This guy, this, this tribe, they really are jerks, are they not? They basically said, you didn't call us when you went to battle. We didn't get the glory with you, and we're going to burn you and your house down. Nice guys. Nice guys. Um, and, and so uh, we look back, and I, I just remind you that chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, remember they dealt with Gideon? Gideon had gone over and been pursuing, and, and they finally they, they were uh, they were summoned to block off, to barricade, as it were, the, the Jordan River so that the, uh, the, the people couldn't escape. What's really ironic about that is the Jordan's going to be blocked again, and they can't escape. Kind of another twist of, of events. But anyway, here you have uh, them coming to Gideon and saying, wait a minute, how come you didn't call us and let us share in the glory and all this? And that's where Gideon wimped out. Gideon tries the ego-stroking approach to diplomacy, and he says, oh, you guys are so great, and whatever, what are we compared to you? Uh, that's, not, uh, that's not Jephthah's style. Jephthah says, all right, let's cut the baloney here. What a joke. You guys, when I called you, I did call you. You didn't come. You're probably busy burning down one of your brother's houses, but you didn't come to my battle. And so I went out, I trusted God, and God gave the victory. So you guys, just shut up and and go on. Well, they didn't, and that's when swords and shibboleths come along in the rest of the story. And you know, they do battle. Uh, many of the tribe of Ephraim are are slaughtered in the in the midst of the confrontation. And then you had this strange little story uh, told about the, the way in which the, the uh, Jordan River, the passage across the river was barricaded. And now you couldn't get across back into your uh, uh, go across the Jordan without saying the secret password. When Jeanette and I were on the Isle of Man years ago, we went to this kind of amusement park thing, and you came to this place, and they gave you the secret password. I still remember it. I don't know what it means, but it was Iliadun. And that was the word you had to say to get in or out or whatever you did. Well, the secret password here is Shibboleth. But you see, 
races have problems with certain uh, and, and tribes have problems with certain sounds. Now, I would tell you what the Spanish sounds were that I can't pronounce, but I can't pronounce them to tell you. But I know I can hear uh, Cliff or Jim, his brother or somebody else say those things. And I say, how do you make your mouth do that? And, and, and I have some of my Indian brothers here who have a little trouble with the word V. It's very nice to meet you today. And, and they want to say V, but it doesn't come out that way. We all have sounds that are difficult to pronounce. And Ephraimites just couldn't say the SH sound. <laughs> all they could say was Sibileth. Can you imagine? I mean, if it weren't so grimy and, and gory, it would be funny. Here you've got a guy, and he says, I, I need to cross the river. Are you an Ephraimite? Oh, no, 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 I'm not an Ephraimite. Okay. Say, Shibboleth. And the guy's puckering his lips, and he's thinking, this is a really important word, I must say, here. <laughs> and it won't come out. It won't come out. If your life depended on it, and it does, it won't come out. And so, if you said... Sibboleth, you were killed, and many were there at the uh, at the river. Okay, so where does all of this take us? I, I think number one, this text teaches me about the power of words. You know, in in Proverbs chapter eighteen and verse twenty one, it says, "Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruit." It's really true here. Whether you say shibboleth or sibboleth, it makes life and death differences. What Jephthah said in his vow to the Lord had life and death implications, did it not? And is that not why the scripture says over and over, be careful about making vows. Be careful about making vows because you are committing yourself to a course of action that is, by and large, with very few exceptions, irreversible. There were cases where if a man married a woman and he learned that she had made a vow, he could revoke that vow now because he has authority over her. If he lets it pass, then the vow is binding. Vows are very, very significant things. What comes out of our, our mouths is important. Remember, Jesus says, we will give account for every idle word that comes from our mouth. And here in this text, you really see it. Secondly, the importance of history. We live in a day when revisionist history is the rule of the game. The Holocaust, they tell us, some would tell us, didn't exist. And that has worlds of implication. When you, If you look at, at Dell Hackett in the Truth Project, he has an excellent, excellent lesson on history. The way in which you view history is the way in which you will view life and reality. And if you have a wrong view of history, my friend, then you have a wrong view of life. And it's interesting to me, when you look at the Old Testament, you say, among other things, this is history. And it's that history upon which the New Testament then bases and grounds itself and says, here is the reality on which our faith is based. We need to know our history. I think, I, I, I have to confess to you, I was a political science major, and I took some history courses because they sort of crossed over. I was not a great history student. I wish, I wish now that I was. I was not a great history student. I think we all ought to be better students of history. If we were, I think we would solve 
a lot of problems. How do we deal with Jephthah's vow? To me, I think you just have to say, I don't think he meant the implications. He didn't see where it was going. But he said it, and it looks to me like he followed through. As, As ugly as that is, it seems to me that that's the way it was. Now, having said that, look at the testimony of Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, Jephthah is one of those deliverers who is mentioned that God has raised up to deliver Israel. But the best one is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Jephthah is listed in the hall of faith. Does that not say something to you? I guess what I'm trying to say is this. If our text tells us that Jephthah is a jerk, and I believe it does, Hebrews tell us, tells us he is a saved jerk. He is a saved jerk. Now, that ought to be one of the most encouraging things that you hear. I, I was thinking about a, a message that John Piper did on William Cowper. Do you remember? Or Cooper, maybe I should say. It depends on how you want to say it. But William Cooper. And, and he talks about how this man was so depressed and, and even suicidal and whatever. And Piper makes the remark that, strangely enough, that was one of the most encouraging messages he had ever given. You know why? I think. Because when we focus on the heroes who look flawless, all of us shake our heads and say, that isn't me. But when we look at the jerks, we say to ourselves, wow, God used a class A jerk to deliver his people. God has a jerk in the hall of faith. Why do you think those people came to Jesus? Uh, the prostitutes and the tax gatherers and all of the, 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 the worthless scum, so to speak, of society as people viewed it. Because Jesus gave them hope. It isn't about our performance. If there's anything this text tells us, it isn't your performance that's going to put you in the hall of faith, folks. It isn't this text that the writer points back to and says, wasn't he great? What he says is, he trusted God. So I'll go ahead and I'll tell you, a lot of Christians, no, 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 I'll go back. Every Christian makes stupid mistakes. I ask you to go back in your life, in your time, think about some decisions, some commitment that you've made, and you now look back at it and wish you could forget it, and you say, that was one of the dumbest things I ever did. Isn't it great to know that God's grace and God's forgiveness is bigger than that? So, let me just end with this. Unintended consequences. I was thinking about all of that like the pharmaceutical people when you watch an ad for a drug on TV. You know, one of the things they'll always say, they give this long litany. If your hair falls out, if you lose an arm, if you go blind or, or drop dead or kill yourself, uh, we're, we're, that happens sometimes with our drug. That happens. They, don't they say it? Am I, am I? See, when they made the drug, they didn't make it to do that. But when they made that drug, those were the unintended consequences of what they did. And you see that throughout. When we look at the legislation that's before uh, Congress right now, I, I fear that some of the things that will be passed are intended consequences, like Funding of abortions. I believe that's intentional, not accidental. But in addition to all the ugly things that are actually intentionally proposed, 
There are those things that we will never even imagine until we get there and all of a sudden we say, oops. I mean, look, folks, how long was Jephthah's vow? How long was it? A sentence? How long is the bill now before Congress? Hundreds and hundreds of pages. Do you think there's not a chance that they said something wrong that's going to come back and bite them? Now, here's why I'm saying it. I'm not, I don't want to get too political yet, but I'm still thinking about it. But, but what I, what I do want to say is, we as men need to recognize that we are going to say and do things, the consequences of which are only evident in the future and they are unintentional. Think about Adam's sin. And all of the unintentional consequences of that sin. And think of Abraham and, and uh, how he made mistakes, he sins, and the unintentional consequences of that which we see in the Middle East. Because he took a concubine to produce a child rather than trust God to give him a child through his wife. Unintended consequences. Here's the thing that I love, and it, it, I'm going to trailer hitch it on to last week. Isn't it great to know that with God, there are no unintentional consequences? There, are, there is never a time, there has never been in all of history, there will never be in all of the future, there will never ever be a time when God says, I never thought of that. Everything that God does, he knows the consequences before he decides to do it. That to me says, if you want a leader, folks, you better recognize that every leader, even the good guys, and I'll put Jephthah in that, in that bunch, even the good leaders have flaws. Don't, don't make heroes of your leaders, because every leader, myself included, Every leader has its flaws that we wouldn't particularly care to have put up there on the screen for you to look at. We, it's, we're, we're human. It doesn't excuse those things. It simply says we are frail, fallible people. Isn't that what we talked about? First Corinthians chapter one. God uses the weak things and the foolish things. I know he doesn't say jerks there, but isn't that really true, too? In fact, when you look through church history, some of the people who were our greatest heroes, you wouldn't want for your next door neighbor. You wouldn't. Some of those people are jerks. But God used them. And, and so what I'm saying is, when we put our trust in men, plan on unintentioned uh, in, uh, results that are going to come about. Consequences that men never expected. When you place your trust in God... You place your trust in one who has no flaws, no chinks in his armor. Isn't that what Satan was looking for when he tested our Lord Jesus? He kept testing here and testing there and saying, I know I'm going to find one. And he didn't. Not only was our Lord without flaw, but he was omniscient and omnipotent so that everything he says, everything he purposes, he accomplishes. What does the book of Judges say to us? Don't put your trust in men. Put your trust in God. For God will bring about his kingdom. He will bring about his king who is the perfect leader. And he is the one for whom we wait. Father, we thank you for this text. As difficult and as dark as it is, it says to me at least that you choose to use people 
who have their flaws, that you use people and in spite of their flaws, you accomplish your purposes and you fulfill what you have determined to do. I look at this text, I cannot, I cannot worship men. I cannot put my trust in men. I must know that all men fail. But what I can do is trust in the God who is reflected and represented here with whom there are no unintentional consequences. If there's anybody here that has not trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation, may they acknowledge that they too are sinners and that they will never merit eternal life based upon their good works. May they acknowledge their sin. May they understand that Jesus Christ has borne the penalty for them and that he offers them in its place his righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.